After much delay, we are finishing our series called The Moral of the Story, and we've been talking about parables of Jesus. This will finish up our series. We've been talking about many, many different parables. We haven't covered them all. We've done two or three each week to try to get a, a grasp of what Jesus was teaching. Today, we'll cover two that we haven't gone through, and one we'll re-mention because it's right sandwiched in there. But these parables are stories that Jesus told about normal everyday life in order to help people understand abstract spiritual things. Because if you're trying to understand God, it can be like you don't even know where to start. And so Jesus would tell stories that were about everyday life to help people make a connection with spiritual things. So we are going to look at Three parables, two that we haven't looked at and one that we have, all from Matthew chapter 25. So we're going to go through Matthew chapter 25, but in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is talking about end times things, how there's going to be an end to this way of living. The whole thing is going to shift. It's going to change. And of course, people have lots of different opinions on how that's exactly going to work. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus is coming back here and there's going to be a reckoning. There's going to be a a moment in time where we're called to account before God. Now, that can happen like over the last 2,000 years individually as you go to meet Him. You know, as we leave this earth and go to meet God, but there's going to be a day when Jesus comes back here, and then there's going to be a whole bunch of people meeting God at the same time, and it's going to be quite the thing. And so that's what he's talking about before these parables. So let's read a little bit of Matthew chapter 24. We're going to read starting in verse 36, and it'll give us a good feel for what Jesus is talking about and why he would put these parables forth to his disciples. And by the way, Jesus is talking to the disciples. This is not like the Sermon on the Mount in front of a whole bunch of people, but it was recorded, so Matthew would have been there, and Matthew wrote down what Jesus said. And so this is kind of insider information, but recorded for us so that we could be insiders as well. So here's a piece of Matthew chapter 24. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So Jesus is saying, I don't even know when these things are going to happen. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. That's Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man. Verse 38, for in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So he's saying, like, there's going to be people just living their lives, figuring everything's normal, just like it was in Noah's day. Well, Noah's a little kooky. He's building a huge boat, you know, on dry land. He's kind of lost his mind, but whatever. Let's just live our lives and not let some weird people make us feel uncomfortable. So they're living their lives in a normal way, and the same thing is going on today. That Jesus is coming back at some point. I don't know when that's going to be. You know, I mean, it's very clear from what we've read that we shouldn't be guessing when Jesus is coming back. He said the he didn't even know when it was going to be. So let's not guess, but it could be any time. It's really amazing, <laughs> the prophecies that are being fulfilled in the scriptures. Let's, let's keep reading. Verse 40. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken, the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. 
If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. This is another verse that clearly explains that we won't be able to guess when the second coming is going to happen because I'm firmly convinced that if we were actually right, God would change the date just to mess us up so that we wouldn't be expecting him. So don't guess. What are we supposed to do instead of guess? Be ready. So you also must be ready. So Jesus tells a series of three parables to help us understand Three different aspects of how we are to be ready for the day when we meet the Lord. Now, the context here was the second coming of Christ. But of course, this is also true for the end of our life. How do we get ready for the day when we go to be with him? We must be ready. There's two types of people. People who are eagerly anticipating the return of Christ or who are excited about going to see him. You know, I'm, I'm in no rush to leave this life here. In fact, I've, I want to live to be 150, you know, because there's too much fun stuff to do. I'm really, really looking forward to being with the Lord. But now is the time to be here. So let's embrace this and enjoy it. Let's live abundant life today. Let's grab hold of it. Man, there's so many awesome things to do here. So many things that we have the opportunity to do. So let's, let's embrace this life. But there are two types of people. The people that are looking forward to meeting the Lord and the ones who aren't. We can be ready. We can be enthusiastically excited about the return of the Lord. We can be enthusiastically excited about going to see Him if we're ready. So how do we get ready? Three parables, Matthew 25, let's read the first one. Matthew 25, starting in verse 1. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, I did a little bit of uh, research on this because I don't understand the ten virgins deal. But basically, it's more like the wedding party. It's not ten brides. It's more like all the bridesmaids and stuff is the best I could get. You know, like it's just the whole, it's the wedding party is there. They're ready to go. It's not 10 brides. It's not like the ancient version of The Bachelor. You know, that's not what's going on here. Uh, But there are people invited to the party. And they're supposed to be part of the party. But only some of them are going to make it into the party. And so we want to know how to be ready. Let's keep reading. There's the 10 virgins. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. So... They had lamps, they had oil in the lamp, but they didn't have any extra oil. Verse 4. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. So we have the foolish ones have lamps with oil that are lit. The wise ones have lamps with oil that are lit and extra oil in another jar. That's the difference. All of them became drowsy and fell asleep. How many of them fell asleep? All of them. It isn't that the wise ones had the stamina to not fall asleep. They all fell asleep. For the people he's telling these stories to, it's going to be thousands of years. Like, this is a long wait. I've been a Christian now for 30 years. What, what year is it? 31 this summer. 
And I'm starting to understand this is a long run, man. This is a marathon. This is not just like, wow, you know, heaven and hell, epic battle, wow. There's also just an attrition thing that happens. You can get worn down in the middle of this. It's a long, it's a long time. It's a battle. They all fell asleep because it was going to be a long time. And even the wise get sleepy. Verse 6, at midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied. Now, I don't think that it means if you're wise, you don't share. That's not the meaning of this parable. What it means is only you can be ready. You are responsible for making you ready. No one else can do that for you. I can't do that for you. Your spouse can't do that for you. Your parents can't do that for you. You have to be ready. Only you are the one who can make you ready. No one else can help you with that. This isn't a sharing situation. This is between you and God, and that's it. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the doors were shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. So what is the first thing that we need to do in order to be ready? We need a plan for the long haul. Amen? We have to last. We have to last. Because if you remember the parable of the sower, there was the seed that sprouted quickly and withered. When we are here following Christ in this life, it's not a you know, couple hours of excited about Jesus and then fade back into nothing. It's a life of walking with God. Now there can be ups and downs and you might get drowsy and fall asleep. Because it might just be a lot longer and a lot harder than you thought. But it's about living a life and staying true to the end. We're called to last. This parable is kind of scary because all 10 knew the bridegroom was coming and all 10 prepared for the bridegroom to come. But some of them weren't prepared to last long enough till the end and they did not get in. So the wise prepared for the long haul and they were able to finish. That is a very important thing This parable basically is saying, be ready to last. Be ready to last. Understand that this is going to be a long haul. It's going to be hard. It's going to take a long time. Be ready to last. Don't quit. If you've you've spent much time in the scriptures, you know God doesn't like quitters. When we walk by faith, we keep walking by faith. We stand. We overcome. We run the race to the end. So the parable of the ten virgins, the point is that we must last. We must run the race to the end. The next parable in chapter 25 of Matthew, the very next verse, we're not going to read it because we already have, is the parable of the talents. And you can go back and listen to that on the, on the internet or you can watch it on YouTube. But basically... That parable was all about how do you be ready? You know, step one from the the ten virgins, be ready for the long haul, be ready to last. Understand this isn't a 
an up and then back down. We must maintain our relationship with God for the long haul. The parable of the talents was about being productive for the kingdom of God. Well done, good and faithful servant happened to those who, who multiplied what they were given by God. Now, the, the bottom line with that is, if you try, you're going to be okay. It's when you don't try. If you try and fail, I'm convinced that God will say, nice try, good and faithful servant. Come and share your master's happiness with your faithfulness, but your ineffectiveness. Might not quite get the same rewards, but you yourself will be saved as one escaping through the flames. As everything you've done was tested by the fire, it all burned up, amounted to nothing, but you're still saved. You still go to heaven. You're still rescued from condemnation because you've been trying to bring good things into a dark world. Because you've been trying to bring people into a relationship with God. You've been trying to bring joy into a world of sorrow. You've been trying to bring love into a world of hate. You've been trying. Maybe you failed. (laughs) But if you're trying to advance the kingdom of God, you are working for, for your Father in heaven, and then you're ready. So parable number two, the parable of the talents is basically try to be productive. Try to get the job done. If we are productive and effective for the kingdom of God, then we are ready for the return of Christ. We are ready to meet God. And then the third parable in Matthew chapter 25 is the parable of the sheep and the goats. Another parable about being ready to meet the Lord. This one is is pretty amazing. Verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So imagine this picture. Jesus comes back. There's all the angels with Him. The nations are called before Him and He separates the people out into two huge groups. Won't that be something? When I picture going before God, I just see myself, just me, before God, before the throne, having to give an account for my life. But this is a picture of masses of people being separated into two large groups. Maybe it'll happen like that, and then we'll be individually go in, you know, when our name is called and give our account. But there's this massive separation of people, like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. So you, need, you see somebody needs some help on the side of the road and you help them? Jesus takes it personally. You see someone who slipped on the ice and they need some help, and you help them, Jesus takes it personally. You see someone with a need, and you come to the rescue, how small that need may be. 
Jesus takes it personally. Whatever you did for one of the least of these, you've done for me. So if you go pay attention to the one in church that nobody else seems interested in, everybody's talking, they all have friends, and they're talking to each other, and there's somebody standing by himself looking around to see if anybody cares, and you go talk to that person, Jesus will take that personally, like you did that for him, like he was lonely and in church and wondering if God cared or anybody cared. He'll take it personally, and when that day comes, he'll thank you for it. Isn't that good news? Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So that's a strong statement. That's real strong. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. He said, look, I needed some help. You didn't even care. I was thirsty. You gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. You did not invite me in. I needed clothes. You did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison. You did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So this is an amazing parable, isn't it? What's the difference between the sheep and the goats? How much theology did you see in that parable? I didn't see theology. I mean, are we going to argue about tenets of faith? Was there tenets of faith in that parable? Was there Calvinism versus Arminianism? Was there a quiz in that parable? Did what they believe even come up in that parable? It didn't even come up. So do your deeds matter? Yeah. Now, read the whole Bible, right? Because it's not by works. We're not saved by our works. But read the whole Bible. Read this one too where Jesus takes personally what we do for the least of these. Let's pay attention to that as well. If we only read not by works so that no one can boast, and we just skip the parable of the sheep and the goats, then we're going to have a skewed perspective of how this works. Because I don't care how many times you say it's not by by works so that no one can boast, Jesus will still take it personal if you ignore the needs of the least of these. So in order to be ready, we've got to love people. With our actions, not just our words. Now, your words can be actions. You can speak something, and it can be a powerful thing to the good or to the bad. Your words can be an action. You can speak life. That's an action. You can speak death. That's an action. But you also need to help them change the tire on the side of the road. That's good. We have to love people with our actions. It's an important part of what we see here in the Scriptures. Jesus takes personally how we treat others. Now, both of these groups seemed oblivious to their behavior. Did you notice that? The righteous ones were like, we never saw you. When did we give you something to eat or something to drink? You weren't even here. You were gone. Where, how did... And they were oblivious to what they had done. And also the others, they were also oblivious. Well, when did we see you in need and not help you? When did that... Both groups seemed to be oblivious. The, the group that did right wasn't following a bunch of religious rules. Say, well, yeah, there's that rotten, lousy so-and-so, but I guess I better do something for him because Jesus is going to get mad at me if I don't. You know, That wasn't what was going on in the hearts of these people. 
the, the indication here, because they were oblivious to what they were doing, they were oblivious to what their king would, would say to them, is the, the implication is this was something in their character. It was something in their hearts. Some of them, when they saw a need, they just were compelled to help. Others, when they saw a need, thought, yeah, I don't need to bother with that. So there's a heart issue here. When we get the right heart, we're going to naturally do the things that here are expected of us to be ready for the return of Christ. We will last. If we have the right heart, we will know that walking with God through this trial is the right thing to do. God is our rescuer. God is our helper. He's the one that's going to take care of us. So in the midst of this trial, I'm not going to run away from my helper. I'm going to run towards my helper. And we'll last in the long run. We'll be productive for the kingdom of God because we'll see the need and we'll want to meet the need. We'll, we'll want to bring light into the darkness. We'll want to expand the kingdom of God. We'll want to be involved in missions and evangelism and discipleship. We'll want to be involved in church things and we'll want to be involved in, in walking around doing the Christian life in, in the non-church realities, which is a lot of the sheep and the goats too. We're going to have love people with our actions, be busy doing these things. If we have the right heart between us and God, we're going to want to last. We're going to want to spread the gospel. We're going to want to help people, even the least of these who have no ability to pay us back. We're going to want to do that because our heart's going to be right. How do you get your heart right? Has your heart ever not been right and you really wanted it to be and it just still wasn't? How do you love people when you just don't? How do you last when you're just out of faith, and you just don't care anymore. How do you do it? I want to read John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We'll at least read that verse. We might read some more. This is a short one. 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. First. You know, love goes first. Love doesn't wait for the other person to be worthy. Love goes first. God went first for us. Jesus went to the cross, died that we could be reconciled to the Father before, before any of us were even born, before any of us cared about Him at all. He went first. We love because He first loved us. We'll read 20 and 21 as well because this ties into the sheep and the goats. How do you start to care about the needs of other people? Oftentimes, what will happen is that when we are suffering, we will have less compassion. They did a psychology study. You know, some of these things should be illegal. I don't know how they get away with this, but you sign a waiver, they can do all kinds of stuff to you. But they, they did a psychology study where they sat people down and they explained to them how painful an electric shock was to somebody, and then they started bidding. Would you shock someone this bad for 100 bucks? How about for $500? How about for $1,000? How about for $10,000? And they found out where their threshold was when they would cause pain for someone else in order to receive something for them. And they found something very interesting. If they gave people antidepressants, they would, they would refuse to shock people. They would have to be paid a whole lot. But if they were in physical pain, if they were depressed and angry themselves, they'd be like, yeah, 50 bucks, great. Bang! Somebody else should be hurting in this world too. And they didn't care about other people 
because they were suffering themselves. Have you been in that situation where you're hurting, you're in a world of pain and misery, and somebody else is crying about something that's a tenth of what you're going through, and you're like, you ain't been through nothing. You're not compassionate. How do we get compassionate in a dark world that's kicked us around? How do we get to the place where we're ready for the return of Christ because we're helping the least of these, where we're being productive for the kingdom of God, where we're lasting through it? How do we get there when we're hurting and not feeling real compassionate for the needs of others? We love because we're told to, because we don't want God to be mad at us, because we're supposed to, because we like to put on a front. Well, we just fake it for a little while. We love because he first loved us. If we don't connect with the love of God, if we don't get that in us and know what it's like to be forgiven, if we don't get that in us and know what it's like to matter, how many people were accidents? Were you anybody an accident? I was an accident. Maybe I was a surprise. I don't know. I was a present. There is no accidents in the kingdom of God. There's no mistakes. If you think I'm a mistake, think I'm an accident, you think I shouldn't really be here, but I sort of snuck in, God has a plan for you. You're no accident. You're no mistake. He first loved us means that we matter. We're part of God's eternal plan. We're people that, that are important because God loves us. He knows our names. He's watching us. He's rooting for us. He's cheering for us. We love because he first loved us. Let's read the next couple of verses. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. That's pretty straightforward. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So we get a command, but we start with verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Why do people hate? It's usually because they were hated. Why do people fight? It's usually because they've been abused. The darkness of this world hits us, and it sinks in, and then it comes out. But God has a different plan for each one of us. And that is that after it comes out, And we do all this evil, horrible stuff. And then we start to realize, oh my gosh, I'm less the victim and I'm more the problem now. How did I get here? And we start to realize, I I need to fix something that's broken inside. Then we need to get a revelation of what this means. We love because he first loved us. I tell you, you, I don't think you can grit your teeth and love people. Yep, I'm going to do it because I'm supposed to. You can refrain from killing people which I suggest, but how do you love people? I am completely convinced it's an overflow of the heart. And so we need to be filled up with something different than the evil of this world. We need to be filled up with something different than being kicked around. We need to be filled up with something different than being told we don't matter. We need to be filled up with something different than failure. We need to be filled up with something different than the darkness of this world. And that thing we need to be filled up with is the love of God for us. God loves you. Get a revelation of that. He knows your name. He's hearing you think right now. He knows the hole in your soul, and he loves you. If you let yourself be loved by God first, before you try to prove yourself to him, it's the whole point of of the plan of redemption. Jesus died to save sinners, not to exalt the righteous. He loves us first before we get right with him. He forgives us first before we do anything good at all. You're loved right now. I'm hesitant to say God loves you just the way you are. I like to say God loves you right now. 
He wants you to change. <laughs> he wants you to have your heart opened, your heart softened. But he loves you right now. The forgiveness of God is completely paid for, is totally complete. You can't add anything to the blood of Christ on the cross and deserve to be forgiven. You don't deserve it, just relax. It's not about you. It's about the love of the Father for you. Forgiveness is complete. You matter. A better life for you is part of God's plan. You belong. Freedom and healing is waiting for you. And there's a new spirit ready to come into your heart. Not a spirit of bitterness, not a spirit of anger, not a spirit of lust, not a spirit of greed, not a spirit of jealousy, but a spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. A spirit that is holy and from God that rests on us and in us and changes us. When you first let yourself be loved by God, then you can love God and you can love other people because you've got something in you that you can share. If all that's in there is the darkness of this world, the hurts, the pains, the cruelty, the mess, you have no well to draw from. But you've got to get right with God first before you can be ready. You know, you've got to make yourself right with God. You've got to you got to ask for forgiveness. You've got to say, hey, Lord, I want to walk with you. I want to learn how this all works. You've got to help me out here. And then, then guess what? You're perfectly forgiven. You're not perfect yet, but you're perfectly forgiven because the blood of Christ is sufficient for you. You're perfectly forgiven. You're, you're right with God. It's fixed. Then bring that light to other people. Be effective and productive for the kingdom. Then help other people. Look, look to, to help the least of these. We've got to open ourselves to the love of God first. So let's go before the Lord. Let's open our hearts tonight. Heavenly Father, you are so good. Thank you for your plan to not kick those who are down. But Lord, for those who have been cruelly treated by this world and who have responded in kind, because what else are you going to do? Your plan isn't to reject those, but your plan is to redeem those. Your plan is to show us that we're loved before we've even asked for forgiveness, before we even knew you were real. Lord, you had a plan for each one of us. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, that we are loved right now, that complete forgiveness is waiting, that we matter, that we belong, that we are free in you, that the chains do not bind us, but we can break free, that healing, even that deep healing, the healing from old wounds, healing in our heart is there, and a new spirit is ready. But we want to be ready. We need to be ready. We don't want to be caught in that place where you arrive and we weren't prepared. So we know we need to be ready for the long haul. Lord, let us have that resolve, knowing that, that you did not give up on us. We're not going to give up on you. Lord, help us to be productive and effective for your kingdom, making a difference in this world for your gospel, for your truth. Lord, help us to at least try, put our money on deposit so that we've at least done something, so that we're ready. And Father, I pray that you would give us a supernatural vision to see the needs of the least of these, so that we can see when that glass of water is needed, when that little bit of help is needed, and that we would be ready to step in. Because we know, Lord, you stepped in for us, and you take it personally when we step in for others that you have died for. Give us that vision. Lord, bless us in that way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.